Good afternoon. Thank you so much for being a part of the work that we're doing here at Northfield Boulevard here in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Thank you so much for tuning in, for watching, and for your interest in spiritual things. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapters 22 and 23. We'll spend most of our time in the 23rd chapter, but I want to talk about judgment today. You know, when we talk about judgment, we usually think of it in a couple of different ways. Sometimes we talk about the judgment seat of Christ and standing before God on the day of judgment. Sometimes we talk about casting judgment on others. And, you know, there are those who uh, really don't like the idea of anybody telling them that they're wrong or that they're not right when in fact there's such a thing as righteous judgment. But then we talk about others judging us, others watching us, others observing and rendering some sort of a verdict in our lives. And that's the kind of judgment that I'd like to talk about for just a few moments this afternoon by looking at Acts chapter 23 and a statement that is made by the Apostle Paul when he says, I am being judged. And I want us to understand that the world is always watching us and that the world is always judging us. And I want us to talk about a handful of things. But before we do so, I want us to look at the problem that was found in Acts chapters 22 and 23 in our text. We're not going to take the time to read chapter 22 or chapter 23. That would be quite the lengthy reading of 65 verses. But I encourage you to familiarize yourself with chapters 22 and 23, perhaps sometime this week. But we'll give a quick uh, roundup of what happened in the course of those few verses at the outset of our study. I want us to appreciate that Paul was defending himself and was defending the cause of Christ and that that angered the Jews in the first two dozen verses of chapter 22. And he recounts the conversion process of being on the road to Damascus and then going to Damascus and then being told by Ananias what he must do. Perhaps the most quoted verse in all of those 23 verses is verse 16, where Ananias says, Arise and be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. As Paul gives his defense and continues to uh, provide reference to his being saved and being now a Christian, the Roman authorities prepare to further interrogate the former Saul of Tarsus, now the Apostle Paul, and find out in verses 24 through about verse 29 that he is a Roman citizen. And we know that once Paul claims his Roman citizenship, that that changes the dynamics, that being before a Roman uh, leader now makes it so that he has certain rights that otherwise would not have been afforded to him had he not been a citizen of the Romans. And so here in verse 30, it says the next day, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, 
he released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. And the them there in verse 30 is the council or the Sanhedrin, which had been summoned by the Roman authorities to defend their anger against the former Saul of Tarsus. That's the problem leading up to chapter 23. And again, I encourage you to read those 30 verses when you have some time this week. But I want us to then realize the problem as it is shown in verse 1, beginning of chapter 23. Read with me, if you would, beginning in verse 1, where it says, Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. We'll come back and make an observation about that in just a moment. Paul says in verse 3, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? Those who stood says, do you revile God's high priest? Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Paul begins his presentation, his defense, by pointing out the hypocrisy, the whitewashed nature of the Jewish leaders. This was a common claim of Jesus when he dealt with the Pharisees and the scribes earlier in the first century by calling them whitewashed tombs or hypocrites, as he, re- as he famously does, for example, in Matthew chapter 23. And then Paul, the master teacher that he was, and the effective debater that he was effectively causes a split by highlighting the differences between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Verse 8, the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, no such thing as angels or of the spirit, but the Pharisees, they believe in both of those things. And so he basically causes the the group that had been united opposed to him to now be divided in their opposition to him. Then in verses 12 through 15, we find that some of the Jews plan to ambush Paul and kill him. You know, this is one of those many occasions where Paul faces persecution in a way that is strikingly different than the persecution that we face today. Sure, we face individuals that are going to think badly of us, talk badly of us, and from time to time may harm us physically. But in the first century, these great men and women who served God were men and women who understood that there were serious consequences to signing on the dotted line and becoming a Christian. Well, look, if you would, at verse 16. It says, when Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, of their uh, uh, attack that was about to occur, he went and entered the barracks and he told Paul. And so Paul's nephew helps spoil the plan such that Claudius Lysias decides to protect Paul by sending him to Felix at night with a great band of soldiers to provide help for him. And then that brings us to the title of our study, 
where Paul says, I am being judged. Look at verse 6. When Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the others were Pharisees, he cried out and he says, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, concerning the hope of the resurrection of the dead. I am being judged. And I like that phrase. And I like that phrase because in many ways it's the same thing that is true for each of us today. When we will stand before men and women and we are being judged by others, our lives as saints cannot, must not, should not ever be lived in vacuums wherein people do not know of our faith. When we live for Jesus Christ, it is a public thing that we do. It is such that others perceive that we are different, know that we are different, and determine that there is something odd or peculiar, to borrow from Titus 2 verse 14, about us. Let me suggest to you that in our study this afternoon, there are five things that are abundantly clear about Paul and his being judged, and about ourselves and being judged. Number one is that we only teach the truth. There must be a notable difference between the Lord's church and denominational religion. You know, sometimes you could go and listen to a preacher, even perhaps a preacher in the Lord's church, And you listen to one sermon after another, after another, after another. And after a month or two or three, if you find nothing different in what they're saying compared to what a denominational preacher would say, that might be cause for you to pause and say, something's not right there. New converts often have the best testimonies of this fact. Because they either come from a non-religious, non-churched, as we sometimes say, background, or because they come from a denominational background. Notice, if you would, the division. We read verse 8, but go back to verse 7 of Acts chapter 23. When he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. I love the word choice that is used there, where it says there is a division or there was a dissension. There's no agreement on their doctrine between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. When it comes to us as saints, as members of the Lord's church, we must know the truth, we must defend the truth, and we must show the world the only truth. You know, one of the worst things that we can do as members of the Lord's church is to be divided on matters of truth. That's one of the reasons that we talk about authority so much. That's one of the reasons that we talk about the identity of the true church so much. Because we are defending the truth. Jesus famously said, you shall know the truth and it's that which shall make you free. And they will know them by the truth. And we are going to be known by the truth as well. This has to be true in the way that we live our lives publicly. For example, it has to be true in our public worship. And this must also be true in our private lives. 
You know, we just finished a recent study of Ezra. And one of the things in Ezra chapter 7 verses 9 and 10 that we discovered was that Ezra talked about the importance of being prepared and then practicing and then preaching or teaching effectively. It is true that we have to match the examples of our lives with the way that we talk and that each brother's example should match another brother's example. There should be a blameless consistency between one brother to another brother. We need to understand that the consistency should be matched such that when one Christian speaks about an event, another Christian speaking about the event says the same thing, albeit maybe with different language, albeit in a different style, but we are all saying the same thing because we are all in one accord. It's okay that someone gets frustrated with denominationalism, but let's show them something different by defending the truth and standing for the truth and not being divided as these men were with the Pharisees and the Sadducees some 2,000 years ago. Let me suggest, secondly, that we learn from Paul being judged that we need to be quick to admit our error. We can say an awful lot about verses four, 3, 4, and 5, but let me just suggest here very quickly that one of the worst things that we can ever do is to always think that we are right and can never make any sort of error or to give the impression to others that we believe that we are always right. Chances are you have either worked in the past or work with someone now who will never admit she's wrong or he's wrong. Uh, Always is right, always has the answer, never needs help from anybody else. And those are the kinds of things that kind of drive us crazy about others. But note, if you would, verses 4 and 5, those who stood by said, do you revile God's high priest? And then Paul says, I did not know that he was the high priest, brethren. Paul had done a really good job of setting the right example for others. And certainly he needs to do the same thing as he was then, as he was always doing in consistency. There Paul says, I didn't know. I didn't know what was right and what was wrong. I didn't know that indeed this particular man was the high priest. There's been so much... Uh, conjecture as to why Paul didn't know. Some have suggested that the high priest was disguised. Some have suggested that his eyesight was poor. Regardless of that, verse 5 in this particular text is an acknowledgement of error. And Christians should never be too proud to admit that we haven't always done what's right and that we sometimes make mistakes. Sometimes the most difficult thing to say is, that was my bad, I'm sorry, I won't do that again. Let me suggest thirdly from this particular text and from the judgment of Paul that there is always work to be done. And when we think about being judged, we might only consider worldly standards 
and the way that the world would judge us. But the worldly way is often lazy, though. And so if we only consider ourselves as compared with those in the world, we will judge ourselves inappropriately. Drop down to about verse 11 in the text where it says, The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. I love verse 11, among other verses in this text. Paul has just done a really good job of defending the gospel. If you look at chapter 22 in its totality, and then you look at chapter 23 in the verses that we were reading, Paul has done a lot of good work in defending the gospel, defending Jesus Christ, standing up for what is right. He's done all of that good stuff. But rather than taking a break, God says, I've got more work for you to do. I've got more for you to be involved in teaching and affecting others for good. I remember when I was much younger, a preacher writing on the board behind us when he says, remember to wear yourself out doing good. And I like that concept so very much where Paul here says, I've just done all this good. Lord, what do you want from me? And the Lord comes to him and he says in verse 11, I'm going to send you to Rome and you're going to do more work and you're going to make more sacrifice and you are going to be about the business of doing good work. Let me suggest as well that we're the good guys. The world is filled with bad guys, and Satan works very hard to convince us that we're the bad guys because we're the ones who are, as we began this this afternoon, with talking about judgment, saying others are wrong. We are, for example, the ones who tell people they can't marry who they love, either because of gender issues or because of uh, marriage, divorce, your marriage issues. We are the ones who discourage a more fun work environment. We are the ones who actually cause the division or the dissensions in our families. The fact is, is those who refuse to support God's message, those are not the good guys. Now, I'm not about to say that I'm here to tell you who's good and who's evil. That's the Lord to judge. But I do know that Satan would have you believe and would have me believe that I'm bad. That Satan wants me to think that I'm the downer, that I'm the one who makes life more difficult for others. Note, if you would, verses 12 through 15. It was in the day that some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. You know, for me to make a pledge that I'm not going to eat or drink until something is done, it better be something very important. But here these men in the conspiracy say, we will not eat, nor will we drink until Paul's dead. 
And they came to the chief priests, verse 14, and the elders, and they said, We have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Now you, therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him. But we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Wow. Can you imagine getting to a place in your life where you are ready to kill someone and you band together and you find 39 other people who are willing to agree with you? This tells me that when Satan gets a hold of someone and is able to influence them, he really takes over. These men, I think we can universally agree, are the evil bad guys in the story. And it's very important that we do not get duped into believing that we're the ones doing wrong by doing right. Isaiah famously says, Woe to him who calls good evil and who calls evil good in Isaiah chapter 5. It is very important that we do the right thing and we do not allow others to suggest that we're doing wrong and that we do not do the wrong thing and allow others to suggest that we're doing what is right. And there are so many applications that we can make about that, but let me just suggest one, and I'm no expert. I don't have all the answers, but I've got the book that has all the answers. And that is, as parents, it is very important that we play that role, that we make sure that when we are doing what is right and maybe our children believe that we're doing something that is harming them, that we say, you know what, I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to bring you up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord as is commanded in Ephesians chapter 6. I'm not going to allow people in the world to determine what's right for my children. I'm going to do that myself based on Scripture based on those things that I find in God's word. And let me suggest finally that everyone has potential. Acts chapter 23 and verse 1 says that Paul looked earnestly at the council and he said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Well, let me suggest to you, as I hinted at at the outset of our study, and now as we come to a close that there are some things that we learn from that verse. Number one is that one's conscience isn't a foolproof guide. There are going to be a lot of people who stand before God on the day of judgment, and they will hear, depart from me. And as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, they will respond by saying, look at all the good that I've done. Look at all the benefits that I have brought to you and your kingdom. And he says, depart because I do not know you. Just because something feels correct doesn't mean that it is correct. Just because others say that it is right does not make it right. Let me suggest, secondly, that we should never give up on someone. I'm reminded of occasions where there are individuals who went day after day, month after month, year after year, refusing to become Christians, refusing to say, I'm ready to become a child of God. And then after 10, 20, 30 years, they wake up and they become a Christian. 
They are baptized for the forgiveness of their sins because we should thirdly never typecast someone. Assume that someone, because of the way that they look or the way that they act, that they would never want to become a Christian. Even the early disciples, as you recall all the way back in Acts chapter 9, were reluctant to accept Paul and to accept the notion that he was a good guy. But it was God who saw the potential in Saul and effectively says, you are my chosen vessel through whom so many individuals will be blessed. Well, there's another person that has potential that is uh, kind of encased in this particular story. And the Bible is filled with unsung heroes, many of whom are never named. And we do not know the name of Paul's sister's son. But here in Acts chapter 23, verse 16, It says, he went, entered the barracks and told Paul, and Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man, take my nephew to the commander, for he has something to tell him. Paul's nephew steps up and he does something great. And the scriptures have never recorded anything great about him except what he was able to do. But God was able to apply his talents and use him for good. It may be, although I think that I would probably argue with you differently. But it may be that you think that your only talent is being able to clean a bathroom or to run a vacuum cleaner. It may be that that's your only talent. Again, I would probably disagree because I bet we can find some better things that you are able to do that even beyond those tasks that you may call menial, but everybody else says is valuable. But the fact is, is we are, as we recently talked about in our study of Ezra, working together as a team where everybody is important. Let me suggest there are two key things to learn as we close. Number one, don't ever underestimate others. Verse 10, there arose a great dissension. The commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, again, who is unnamed, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. Yet another unsung hero, just like the nephew, just like the men and women of the Old and New Testaments who are never named, who do great things, and who God never underestimated. Let's never underestimate others as well. And let me suggest secondly that we learn from this that we are not to underestimate God. If you want to understand that, see the Bible. Go from Genesis to Revelation and you will see from old to new, from ancient to modern, from men and women, from Jew and Gentile, from those who were slave to those who were free, that God says, I can use you. I can put you to work. You and I are much like Paul in the sense that we are being judged and the world is always watching us. We need to live our lives in such a way that others see us as God's children who are ready to serve him, fully committed to his cause. And we want you if you're not already a Christian, to subscribe to that, to say, I want to be a part of something greater. 
I want to be a member of the Lord's church. And we know in Acts chapter 2 that when a person repents and is baptized, the Lord adds to the church those individuals. That could be you this very day. If as a child of God you're not living correctly, and maybe you are typecasting others, you are not giving credit to others or to yourself, you're not engaged in the work that there's always to be done like Paul found out in Rome. Maybe it's time for you to make some sort of a change in your life. We would be happy to pray with you and to benefit you in your spiritual needs. Thank you for watching today. If we can help in some way, let us know. We appreciate your time and bid you a good day.